Welcome to Childhood Art, a podcast sponsored by the Center for the Study of Childhood Art at the University of Arkansas. I'm Christopher Schulte, Director of the Center for the Study of Childhood Art and co-host of the Childhood Art Podcast. Hi, I'm Hyun Park, Associate Director of the Center for the Study of Childhood Art and co-host of the Childhood Art Podcast. Today, we are very pleased to welcome Dr. Tyson Lewis. Dr. Lewis is a professor of art education at the University of North Texas, where he teaches courses in dialogue and inquiry into the arts, educational philosophy, philosophy for children, critical phenomenological research methods, and continental aesthetic philosophy. He has published widely in journals such as New German Critique, Cultural Critique, Thesis 11, Curriculum Inquiry, Educational Theory, Qualitative Inquiry, and Studies in Art Education. He is also author of seven books, most recently Walter Benjamin's Anti-Fascist Education, From Riddles to Radio, and with co-author Peter Highland, Studious Drift, Movements and Protocols for, post, for a Post-Digital Education. Dr. Lewis, welcome to Childhood Art. All right, uh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you both for inviting me. Uh, Chris, you've really got your uh, podcast, your like broadcasting, podcasting voice on. I, I, <laughs> I hope that I can be quite as, as charming as you. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about Benjamin today and uh, excited to have to try and introduce Benjamin to um, early childhood education and to um, uh, art education as well. Well, we're certainly pleased to have you with us and thank you for taking time out of your day to, to spend some time chatting with us. Yeah. Great. So Tyson, um, as you know, I've been an avid follower of her research in the area of educational philosophy, critical theory, and aesthetics. Um, this work has been a great inspiration to my own writing, um, especially um, in writing my doctoral dissertation, which focused on the politics of childhood art um, through the work of Jacques Rancière. Um, so knowing your work, it was actually a, a pleasant surprise to learn about your recent work related to children. Um, for example, the chapter on learning toys, as well as your book, um, Walter Benjamin's Anti-Fascist Education, in which you discuss his educational philosophy, and in particular, his view of childhood and childhood play and creativity. So to acquaint our listeners with your work, could you tell us about who Benjamin is and also how you came to do this work? Um, what is it that drew your attention to this area of inquiry? Sure. So um, thanks for that question, Hayan. Um, you know, I've been wanting to write a book about um, Benjamin and education for a really long time since I was a graduate, uh, a graduate school student, actually, um, as my background is originally in critical theory. And but it, it really wasn't until the rise of, I guess, what we might call global authoritarianism or neo-fascism that I realized how urgent and necessary it it is at you know this historical moment to return to Benjamin. Um, and I guess to you know explain the connections there, I, I have to backtrack a little bit and um, give an introduction to 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 whom uh, uh, to who Benjamin is or was um, and uh, why he's relevant to thinking about, contemporary forms of, of um, neo-fascism. So Benjamin um, was born in the late 1800s uh, in Berlin to a rather well-off uh, Jewish intellectual family um, and then died um, uh, of uh, suicide um, on the Spanish border in 1940 while he was trying to attempt, he was attempting to flee Nazi Germany. So he was attempting to escape from fascism. Um, and uh, during his life, uh, he was a really fascinating intellectual. He was had a really eclectic set of influences that ranged from Jewish mysticism to Western Marxism, things that we think are completely in, um, uh, incompatible uh, with each other. Um, and uh, but also a wide variety of other um, influences that make his um, uh, uh, sort of work inspirational for people today who are interested in sort of cultural studies or um, critical theory writ large. And over the course of his brief life, um, he wrote prolifically in multiple fields. And so he wrote in he wrote sort of philosophical papers and, and books, but also 
engaged with cultural criticism, uh, literary theory, um, and most interesting perhaps for us, he, he actually wrote and performed scripts for the Radio Frankfurt uh, Youth Hour. So he was also a sort of radio broadcaster that directly ad addressed a, um, uh, an audience of children. Um, also, I guess importantly for our discussion today, uh, it's important to note that, that Benjamin was also uh, as a young university student, he was also part of the um, Gustav Weinecken um, German youth movement and was actually elected president uh, very for a very brief period of time uh, because he sort of parted ways with the association, but with the Free Students Association. And it was sort of during this period that he um, wrote a lot of essays and speeches calling for university reform but also theorizing um, youth culture and um, youth activism. So, uh, so he, you know, he had a, an early an early interest in childhood, youth culture, educational institutions, and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, you know, tragically, um, while some of his colleagues, um, also uh, Jewish intellectuals such as um, Theodore Adorno. And, and others, they, they were able to escape Nazi Germany and ultimately ended up in America um, as, as refugees. Um, Benjamin stayed behind and uh, basically spent, uh, basically, um, you know, saw the, the rise of Nazi Germany from the ground, from, from the ground in, in Berlin and, and actually uh, spent some time in a concentration camp and uh, then when he got he got out of that and he tried to escape, but it was too late. Um, he had to make this like daring um, uh, uh, trek to the Spanish border um, where he was uh, detained actually by uh, Nazis. And um, he was so afraid that he would be returned back to Germany and put a, in a concentration camp again that he committed suicide. Um, and miraculously, uh, some of his major unpublished works were actually saved um, by colleagues of his. Uh, in particular, um, uh, uh, Georges Bataille, who was working at the um, uh, Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, uh, the library there, the National Library in Paris, um, at the time, and was he was able to, and, and Bataille was able to preserve Benjamin's unfinished masterwork, which is called the Arcades Project, which was in the library. So uh, Bataille saved that document for us, and it's subsequently um, been uh, published and translated into multiple languages. Um, and I guess, you know, in the United States, Benjamin is probably uh, most well known um, through an edited compilation of some of his short essays by uh, another friend of his who, who was a, a German Jew who, who managed to escape, uh, Hannah Arendt. And that book is, is titled Illuminations. And it's probably through the Illuminations publication that people are, are most familiar uh, with Benjamin's name. But, then, but since then, Benjamin uh, scholarship has really taken off and many of his other works have become available in translation. Um, I mentioned the radio, the arcades project, but I think for um, people interested in early childhood education, um, there are some other publications that are worthy of mentioning, such as um, uh, Radio ben Benjamin, which is a book that basically are their transcriptions of all of his radio um, scripts, which is really, really fascinating. And you can make an argument that it's an early example of um, sort of um, critical public pedagogy um, and uh, uh, using sort of new media. Um, so that's an important one to note. And then also more recently, there is a collection of writings, I think it's just called Early Works or Early Writings. And th these are all of his um, uh, early essays he wrote as a student um, on youth culture and education reform. So there's, you know, just, it, it, he was an amazing sort of eclectic writer. Um, and he wrote about many things throughout uh, the course of his life. But my book, uh, Walter Benjamin's uh, Anti-Fascist Education, really is trying to do two things. Um, one 
it's trying to argue that this early interest in children, youth, and education does not disappear, but actually is continuous throughout his life, and it sort of spreads outward into his engagements with um, uh, you know, uh, uh, media technologies and so on and so forth. So he doesn't really leave it behind. Um, so that's one thing my book is trying to do is sort of chart the strand of education um, uh, throughout his work. The second thing my book is trying to do uh, is, is really argue that um, throughout all of Benjamin's engagements with childhood, education, and youth, there's an underlying political thrust, I guess you could say. And I, I think that a lot, of, a lot of his writings could be seen as experiments in anti-fascist education with a, a special emphasis on how important it is to combat fascism through early childhood education. Um, so my book is sort of a, 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 a deep dive, if you will, on, on Benjamin education and fascism and how fascism first and foremost takes hold of the body. It's, it's not, fascism is not just a political ideology. It's not just a set of beliefs. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not something that, that it, it's not necessarily composed of mental constructs so much as embodied ways of being in the world. And this is why fascism never has a coherent political agenda. Um, uh, uh, rather, fascism is focused on producing a specific kind of body. Um, and so my book um, tries to draw on Theodore Adorno, but also Benjamin, to argue um, that this fascist body is character has a certain set of characteristics. Um, and in the book, I, I describe them as hardness, coldness, and manipulativeness. So uh, uh, by hardness, I mean um, it's a body that is um, defined by rigid boundaries between self and other. Um, uh, so ideas of, of um, uh, creating um, uh, uh, sort of wall, building walls <laughs> around territories is a, is a sort of key component of the fascist body. And then by coldness, I just mean indifference to suffering. So once this self-other distinction is firmly in place through a, through a hardening um, of the body against the world, um, then one can become immune to the suffering of others, but also immune to the suffering of the self as well. Um, so there's just a sort of coldness or numbing of the body. Um, and then thirdly, uh, manipulativeness is really just um, uh, perceiving others, not really thinking about others, but literally perceiving others as pawns or objects um, or a means to achieving one's own end. Um, and so I try to make this argument in the book that Benjamin offers us uh, robust um, tools, pedagogical tools, educational tools for um, thinking about an anti-fascist education for early childhood that's really focused on the body, on uh, the affectivity of the body, the perceptual tendencies of the body. Um, and I guess if I wanted to summarize the thesis of the book, it would just simply be that for Benjamin, you can't think your way out of fascism. You, you really have to feel your way out of fascism. Um, it's, it's really a, an embodied pedagogy that is going to interrupt fascism. And I, I, I believe that was true then um, in the 1940s, and I believe that these lessons have become relevant today um, with the rise of neo-fascism in America, in the United States, but also sort of globally as a trend. Um, and so that's really what uh, motivated me to, to write the book, was uh, to re-examine Benjamin and to try and find um, insight into fascism and what educators can do about it. So Tyson, if I could just ask a, just a quick follow-up, and you've, you've already kind of answered this, but um, I, I guess like part of me is wondering what, what sort of initially orientated you to Benjamin's work. And I wonder if, aside from this particular book project, was it, was it the, the, the sort of commitment to anti-fascist education? Was it um, that, that strand of, of education that runs through the work? just more broadly? Was it 
the kind of political thrust that's embedded in the work. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about what initially drew you to Benjamin, but then also maybe what moved you to what it want to take on this, this type of project, the book project itself. Mm -hmm. Well, I've always been interested in, in questions of embodiment. Um, this is sort of something that runs throughout all of my various projects. But I think that uh, what I, I just, I find Benjamin's um, particular understanding of the body to be extremely relevant um, for thinking about um, uh, what it means to sort of have a, a corporeal democracy, I guess we could say. Um, and so for instance, like Benjamin's work, so if you, if you were to compare sort of Benjamin with Adorno, so Adorno was also deeply invested in denazification projects in, in, in Germany after World War II. He returned, he also engaged with radio. Um, uh, he uh, also addressed questions of early childhood education. But, but I find his writing is really um, more fixated on um, Freudian psychoanalysis and sort of looking at early childhood education from a Freudian perspective, um, which of course is libidinal and has an embodied dimension, but, but it also has to do with one's psyche. Whereas Benjamin is much more interested in literally just the, the sort of energy flowing through the body. I mean, so there's three sort of themes that I pull out of his work that can be used to interrupt um, uh, the development of fascism. Uh, one of these is uh, uh, this notion of innervation. Um, and Benjamin takes this from Freud, sort of, but also through Eisenstein and film theory, like Russian film theory. And so innervation is really about how energy flows through the body, enlivens the body, um, how it can disorganize and reorganize the body and the kind of perceptual cognitive circuitry um, of the body and how it relates to its environment. So, it, so inter, through innervation, we become innervated and this changes what we can see and, how, and what we can feel. So uh, 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 Benjamin is really interested in sort of um, uh, how this can become an e sort of educational um, uh, theme. Um, of, of anti-fascist education. And secondly, um, he focuses a lot, and this might sound weird to uh, people in education, but Benjamin really focuses a lot on the idea of distraction. Um, in education, we tend to think of education as cultivating attentiveness. Um, you know, and this, this runs the broad gamut of whatever educational <laughs> position you take, usually uh, it is non-controversial to say that education is about cultivating attentiveness and that distraction is sort of bad. Um, it's, it's, what, it's an obstacle. But Benjamin takes a completely different route and he says that there are different kinds of distraction. And uh, in particular, there's one kind that could be described as sort of an open, non-discriminatory alertness to the world. Um, and so by becoming distracted, we can actually get outside of ourselves. We can actually um, come in contact with um, forces, objects, um, perceptions that are on the periphery of our conscious awareness. So distraction actually can uh, 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 reveal new things about the world and our relationship to the world. So there is a kind of educational dimension to it. And then the third theme that I pick up on the book, uh, up on in the book, is um, mimesis or mimicry. And um, Benjamin is fascinated and wrote quite a lot about how children and children's play um, is really comes out of a kind of mimetic tendency to produce similarities across differences. Um, the ability of children to um, uh, sort of take on shapes that are from the adult world, such as adult occupations, but also non-human shapes, such as animals, objects, machines, and so on and so forth. So I try to make the argument in the book that, that innervation, distraction, mimesis, these are the uh, quintessential key elements for an anti-fascist education. And uh, so what I mean by that is that an innervated body, 
um, is the opposite of a hard and cold body, right? A fascist body, as I said, is sort of a hard and cold body. It, it's about boundaries. It's about clear distinctions between self and other, the master race versus every other race, um, uh, purified bloodlines, eugenics, right? It's all about very clear, precise divisions and distinctions, whereas an innervative body is completely open um, and expansive um, and experimental uh, and, and is able to touch on otherness. It's the same with the distracted body. So a distracted body is a body that, that sort of lacks the uh, fanatical attention directed towards the fascist charismatic leader. Right, a, a distracted body is very hard <laughs> to organize into a line or or a parade. <laughs> you can't if you have a distracted um, mass or a distracted multitude. It's very hard to coordinate them into the kind of unified public that's necessary for a fascist civilization. Um, and then thirdly, with the mimetic body, the, uh, I, I guess I would argue that like fascists try to transform the world into their self-image. So they try to recreate the world as a projection of themselves. Um, they, they try to project their likeness onto the other. And by doing, this is oftentimes, they, they do this through brutal means, like violent means. Um, and if you don't conform to their self-image, there is always the chance that you will be abandoned um, or excluded, right? Um, put in a concentration camp. And this is the opposite of mimesis. Mimesis, at least the way Benjamin talks about it, is a kind of nonviolent opening up of the self to otherness. It's not about the self projecting onto the other so much as the self taking on the other or incorporating otherness into itself, uh, the child becoming tree-like or becoming uh, something beyond itself. And this is not uh, imposing so much as it is exposing, right? It's about not imposing the self onto the other, but about exposing the self to otherness. And children naturally do this um, for Benjamin. They sort of naturally have innervated, excited bodies. They, they naturally have a kind of distracted curiosity and they naturally engage in mimesis. And so uh, an anti-fascist education takes up these aspects of childhood and sees them as assets in a larger anti-fascist struggle. So Tyson, I want to I want to pick up on this discussion around uh, just the, the broader discussion that we're having around bodies, and in particular children and youth. And I think it's an interesting time, especially in relationship to schools and curriculum, and, and in particular in the United States, to be thinking about the ways in which children's bodies are, are made to be particular kinds of bodies or desire to be particular kinds of bodies. And so I wondered if you could sort of take some of the discussion that you're having in relationship to Benjamin in this book and maybe plug it into our current context a bit and, and leverage some implications for us to think with more broadly. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, great, great question. Um, so interestingly enough, uh, Benjamin provides a critique of um, what he calls sort of bourgeois uh, forms of, of education. And, and, one, and his major critique there is that um, it focuses uh, on, uh, it also focuses on mimesis, but in a way that drains mimesis of its creative um, democratic potentiality. Um, so for instance, uh, he says, like uh, uh, most of, of bourgeois uh, Western um, uh, sort of middle class education is about discipline, disciplining students' bodies, making them conform to a set, a certain set of norms um, that are, are sort of imposed on the children's bodies. And what's interesting about this is what enables this imposition to happen is precisely the mimetic tendencies of children, right? So children naturally want to take on forms. They, they naturally uh, sort of mimic things. And so bourgeois uh, pedagogy uh, leverages this to uh, its advantage and says, well, we're going to take this, 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 this uh, sort of mimetic tendency and we're going to manipulate it um, in such a way that it reinforces the status quo, um, a certain set of norms, values, principles, and so on that define society as it is. 
And so what it does, what this ends up doing is it takes the two, it, it separates mimesis against itself, essentially. So uh, mimesis has sort of two elements. One is reproductive. It, it reproduces things, but it also creatively appropriates um, and experiments and plays with the things that it, that it takes on. Um, and so it seems as though bourgeois uh, approaches to a, a sort of disciplinary form of education accepts the reproductive dimensions of mimesis, but then uh, drain it of the creative, productive, uh, playful tendencies of, of mimesis. And I think that we see this today more than ever with sort of standardized approaches to education, standardized curricula. The, um, uh, in many schools, you don't even have sort of like um, uh, recess anymore. I mean, it's, 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 it's uh, all the spaces where children can experiment with the um, plasticity of their bodies. Um, the plasticities of uh, through mimetic uh, performance, through uh, innervation and through distraction are gone. It's all about, I mean, it's very interesting with sort of like standardized testing and the, the rise of these testing regimes in education. Because the whole point is more focus. Like you're not focused enough. You're not attentive enough, right? Um, you have to be ultra attentive, uh, never be distracted. Uh, there's one answer, um, sit down, uh, train your body to, you know, sit still at a desk, filling out, you know, um, these forms for extended periods of time. So really it's, it's um, uh, 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 doing a great disservice to the uh, sort of uh, uh, creative potentials of, of children um, to experiment with um, new possibilities and what, what a body can do. Yeah, thank you for that, the, the depth and detail of that response, Tyson, much appreciated. I mean, I think we could go even further, really, and say yeah. that, you know, uh, what is the precise norm that forms of education are, are um, imposing on children? And I think we can, you know, turn to sort of critical race theory here and say that they're sort of like white, uh, upper class uh, norms, right? And so... Um, uh, this does particular harm to certain bodies more than others. Um, and so if we were to take Benjamin's observations about education out of a European 1940s context and bring them into uh, education today in the United States, I think that um, there could be some interesting uh, uh, dialogues to be had between uh, a, a sort of Benjaminian anti-fascist notion of education, but also critical race theory. Um, and so I think that, that that's a that's a, a a project that that definitely needs to happen. And, and you know, there there is there are points where of intersection that make this possible. So, for instance, if you go back to like 1970s, 60s, 70s, sort of radical um, uh, Black Panther movement authors, many of them made the argument that you can't really understand American racism outside of a critique of global fascism. Um, and so this is a sort of like missed articulation point for a kind of Benjaminian critical theory of fascism and a kind of American emphasis on uh, white supremacy and anti-blackness. Thank you. And, th and this relates directly to those two concepts or three concepts, but two in, in particular, the hardness and the coldness that you were speaking to previously. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely think that that is correct. So um, the problem here is whiteness and how whiteness has attended. I mean, like if you think about eugenics in the United States, it's all about preserving whiteness. There's a kind of, and, and of course, as we all know that this, that, you know, the eugenics movement was a, a key influence on Nazism and sort of Nazi ideology. And so uh, the, the quintessentially hard and cold body is a kind of white body, is a kind of white masculine body. Um, and uh, I, I, although I don't think Benjamin himself addresses this issue, I just I I don't think it's a it's a hard leap, you know, um, to go in that direction with his line of thinking. Yeah, uh, Tyson, as you were um, talking about uh, play, mimetic play, and um, specifically, it remind me um, it remind me of uh, your elaboration of Benjamin's definition. Uh, which places significance on the child's creative capacity, like play, 
to transform objects into toys rather than the objects directing the play. Mm -hmm. So um, what does Benjamin's perspective on toys and play make available to those of us interested in children's creative practices more broadly? Mm -hmm. And how might Benjamin's work help us to think differently about the complexities of art making in childhood? Right. Yeah. So uh, Benjamin um, has a kind of interesting, or at least my reading of his theory of play. Um, it, it, it basically it has three dimensions. Like what what makes something playful? I guess is the question. Uh, and if we read Benjamin, I think we can tease out at least like three necessary conditions for something to be considered play. And may, maybe they're necessary and sufficient. I don't know, but they're definitely necessary for him. And uh, the first element of play is um, what, what I call profanation. And so think of it this way. Play takes something out of its context. It, it removes something um, from a, maybe a sacred ritual or um, a set of normative gestures. And it takes them out of this context and opens them up for some new unforeseen uses. So a, a great example of this is uh, how like the yo-yo actually, which you know is a well-known toy, was, was actually, I, I believe in South Asia, originally a weapon. Um, and so uh, it is profaned when it no longer is an instrument of violence and uh, children start using it for other purposes, right? And so the children opened it up for new possibilities. They put it into play, let's say. They put its possibilities into play. Um, so that's the first thing. So play involves uh, some element of profanation. Also play uh, involves some element of recycling, I guess you could say. So there's this famous passage in one of Benjamin's books where he says that children um, love to play with trash and they love to like go into construction sites and play with all the discarded materials left behind by the adults. And um, uh, so play appropriates trash or detritus, uh, discarded materials, and um, puts them to new use. Um, it, it, it's very interested in sort of the potentiality that remains in marginalia that is missed by adults, right? Adults just see it as useless, used up, whereas children see it as useful. It's full of use, not used up. Um, and then the third dimension of play, the third sort of necessary condition for something to be called play would be repetition. Um, and, for, and so, you know, anyone that has been around children knows how much they love to have things repeated. It's like, you finish the book at the end of the night and they're like, read it again, right? Or whatever it is. Um, and so repetition takes something with a beginning and an end and suspends the end so that there's a constant feedback loop. So ends are subverted. There's no beginning or end. It's all middle, right? It's, it's, um, it sustains a kind of a certain moment endlessly. Um, and so Benjamin sees in this repetition, a kind of experimentation in happiness, a kind of a, a, a playing with happiness. Um, uh, uh, happiness in play is not deferred to a future, but is present and endlessly repeated through this repetition. So repetition is kind of like an experiment in self-creation. It's an experiment in um, what constitutes the happiness of the self. Um, uh, so, so, okay, so those are sort of like the three elements of play. And again, I would say that the, these three elements are the exact opposite of what we find in fascist education. Um, fascist education tries to eliminate these three dimensions of play. And by doing so, it, it attempts to um, uh, uh, subvert the sort of creative disruptive potentials uh, that children can bring into the world, their natality, right? So fascism, for instance, as I said before, it's sort of like, it's about creating and sustaining boundaries between the sacred and the profane. Um, the sacredness of the Aryan bloodline, the uh, 
uh, sacredness uh, invested in eugenics movements, right? We, we have to safeguard um, uh, pure Aryan whiteness against the barbarians who are trying to, you know, undermine the sacredness of national boundaries. And I mean, we hear this today in, uh, you know, those quote unquote bad hombres coming across the border, right? Um, undocumented laborers, it, quote unquote, infesting America. Um, this is all very fascist. And play is about transgressing boundaries. It's about transgressing these boundaries. That's what profanation is all about. It's about um, uh, disregarding the sacredness of boundaries, the necessity of boundaries, and experimenting with those liminal spaces that exist between boundaries or across boundaries. Um, likewise, fascists are just not interested in marginalia. They're not interested in the forgotten, uh, the discarded remnants of history. They focus on monuments of victory. Um, they focus on um, you know, sort of like, um, yeah, monumental works of art rather than uh, minor works of art. Um, uh, you know, again, play finds play finds potential in the marginal, whereas fascists want to destroy the marginal or or disregard it. Um, and then lastly, uh, the repetitions of play, I don't think are the same as the repetitions of fascism. I mean, I, I, I mentioned this before, but like, you know, fascist repetition is about uh, conforming to a standard that is imposed on one's body. So you can think of here, like the ultimate example of this for fascists would be the military parade. Uh, there's no creativity. It's all about absolute conformity to a norm. There's no creativity here. Um, there's no experimentation with the self. Instead, the self again, rigidifies, it hardens, it calcifies, it crystallizes into some kind of socially um, uh, uh, sort of so socially pres prescribed standards. So I would say that there's very little room uh, for play in fascism. And again, to Chris's point, I think sadly, we're seeing this more and more in the United States today. I mean, I think that there's, there's less and less space of play. Uh, play is villainized. Um, uh, uh, criminalized even in some, in some instances. Um, and uh, I think that these are all in subtle ways, indications of the country drifting in, a, in an increasingly uh, sort of fascist direction. Yeah, this, this has me thinking a lot, uh, the discussion on play at this point has me thinking a lot about your, your paper on learning toys. And so I wonder mm -hmm. if, we, if we could pivot at this point, but in the conclusion of that paper, Tyson, you write, um, when the prefix learning is added mm -hmm. to toy, the essential meaning of toy is lost and toys become mere equipment for adapting children to the status quo. And I, I, I spent a lot of time kind of lingering on this, this point in that paper and found it to be uh, uh, just really productive for a, lot, a whole range of reasons, some of which related to my own work. But I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about, and it might be helpful for those listening to have maybe a bit of context too, just about the paper, but specifically, tell us a little bit more about your thinking uh, related to this particular quote and this particular idea. Yeah, so, uh, so this paper was written, it's kind of like a... Um... Yeah, an offshoot project of the of the um, of the book, and um, it's part of a compilation. It, it's coming out through Oxford University Press, and I cannot remember the name of this book. But basically, the theme of the book is um, about the overwhelming prevalence of the prefix learning in all areas. Of our lives today, so in in terms of like edu just just in terms of education, um, and, and my friends Herod Bista and Jan Moschelin, who are um, educational philosophers, have, have cited this as well. Schools aren't even called schools anymore; they're called like learning centers. Uh, teachers are not called teachers; they're called learning facilitators. Um, students are not called students; they're called learners, right? So everything uh, the rich. Um, uh, vocabulary of education has been reduced to basically one idea, and that is learning. And this is not just an empty signifier. I mean, this is a loaded signifier that has lots 
of connotations, one of which is that education is about inputs and outputs. Um, and that if you look at the sort of rise of the learning society, learnification of, of society, um, you see a pretty consistent emphasis on um, maximizing the yield of education. So you, you want to understand what the inputs are so you can get the maximum um, uh, outputs or the, the sort of, um, you, you, want, you want to maximize your investment, right? Um, so it's sort of education as an economic model, as Herod Bista says, right? Um, a kind of economic exchange. Um, and so uh, my interest was in looking at the rise of learning toys, which is a whole subsection subsector of the economy. Um, so if you go to toy stores, you'll see a whole bunch of toys that are called like learning toys or uh, toys for baby geniuses or whatever it is. And on the toys, you'll see lists of all the things that your children are supposed to learn from playing with these toys, like a set of skills, dispositions. Um, you know, it's going to increase <laughs> Um, their hand-eye coordination, it's going to do this, that, and the other thing. And the, the implicit uh, assumption here is that toys are for learning uh, and that this will give your children an advantage going into the educational marketplace, which again, is it's all about the e economization of education, right? So education is a resource that it, and we need to compete for this resource. And you need, as a responsible adult, as a responsible parent, to give your children the heads up that they need so that they can exceed, not only succeed, but excel uh, in education and beat the other people. So there's this like competitive economic model built into learning toys. And basically my point in the article is that um, when you add the prefix learning to the word toy, you actually destroy what the toy actually is. You, you sort of turn the toy into a tool you turn the toy into a tool or piece of equipment for facilitating learning, whereas really the toy is the outcome of play. Um, uh, through play, children create toys, right? So toys are sort of like um, the trace of a playful activity. They shouldn't orient play. They should uh, uh, be sort of like a residual um, uh, remnant of play. Um, and uh, so, so that's sort of like the, the major um, uh, uh, sort of underlying um, argument for the paper. And uh, so really the paper is just tr simply put, trying to rehabilitate toys so that children can play again. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a wonderful goal, right? And uh, <laughs> I, want, <laughs> I just seems wonder- simple I, enough, but- Yeah, hey, it seems you know. simple enough, sure. I, Tyson, I wonder, I, I really, I really love the way you phrase uh, that at the end, that the, the toy is not such that it's intended as an orientator of, of play, but I wonder if maybe just in, in, a, in a short minute or two, if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Um, okay, so uh, I'll give you a really good example. Children's um, playgrounds. Okay, I'm going to make this very concrete. If you look at the history of playgrounds um, and you go back to sort of the origin of playgrounds, and I'm thinking here of Aldo Van Eyck's playgrounds. Um, and uh, if you look at like the fundamental forms of Aldo Van Eyck's uh, play equipment, or I, I, would, I wouldn't even call, I, I don't want to call it equipment, but I, let's just say the play forms that he uses, they're very simple. And they don't really prescribe movement or anything. They, they're like uh, stepping stones and vague shape, like, like lattices, sort of like metal lattices. Um, but they don't really tell you what to do with them. They um, are intentionally open-ended. And children use them in, 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 in incredibly diverse ways. Um, and uh, so... Uh, they don't prescribe a kind of play orientation necessarily. But then now compare and contrast this to today's modern um, playgrounds. And I would say they are uh, learning playgrounds um, because they really do prescribe exactly what you're supposed to do with them. They look like specific things. So they look like the shape of an animal or they look like a castle or they are like a climbing wall. I mean, they're, they're very prescriptive and uh, in that sense, very normative. And they say, so like implicitly inscribed in them is a certain kind of behavior or action 
that children, again, mimetically will take up, right? Because that's part of mimesis is this reproductive element. Whereas, so I would say that like bourgeois playgrounds emphasize the reproductive dimension of mimesis. The Aldo van Eyck uh, playgrounds emphasize the creative uh, dimension of, of, of mimesis. Yeah, thank you. That was a, a perfect example as well. Um, one last follow-up question on that, Tyson. Um, and I know, Chris, you um, were thinking about this earlier too. Um, do you think similarly about the prefix childhood um, attached to the word art? Like, might it, you know, be the same way that we um, consider children's art in a very specific way where it serves to other studies of childhood or children? Um, right. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. So um, Benjamin was always trying to expand our understanding of what counts as art. Um, you know, so for instance, he wrote about Charlie Chaplin films. He wrote about photography before it was a quote unquote fine art. Um, he wrote about postcards. He wrote about toys. He collected toys. He wrote um, about pornography. Um, so all of these things would traditionally be left out of the canon of fine art and uh, perhaps dismissed as crass consumer objects that somehow lack the rich cultural, political, aesthetic sensibilities of, let's say, high modernist avant-garde experiments and so on and so forth. Yet for Benjamin, uh, he always found something utopian in the dimension of these minor arts. Again, he's very interested in collecting marginalia, um, paying attention to being, being able to be, he was able to be distracted away <laughs> from the canon of great art by marginalia. I think, so it's precisely in these kind of minor arts and crafts that Benjamin discovers the most progressive anti-fascist potentialities. And I would say that I would include children's art in this as well, right? When we talk, when we say children's art, this is a political intervention uh, into what we think of as art. It is, uh, to use Ranciere's language, right? A, a redistribution of the sensible as to what counts as art. And I think Benjamin is 100% behind this. Um, and uh, I'll just give you an, it's sort of an example of this and how he really paid attention to children's activities and um, the sort of artful ways in which they use language and so on. So for instance, in my book, I talk about children's coloring. And you know, Benjamin talked a lot about color, um, especially in relation to children. And um, he has a lot of sort of abstract things to say about this, but think about a phenomenon, and this will sort of make it clear. Um, think about how children uh, always color outside of the lines. <laughs> they don't. They don't like to stay in the lines. They're going to be like, you know, here's the shape, and they're all over the place. You know, um, it's going on the table. It's going on their hands. They love color on their hands. They love touching things, colorful, right? And so now from a sort of developmental psychological perspective, this would be seen as a lack of motor skills and so on and so forth. And they need to sort of like develop fine motor attunements and things. Benjamin takes a completely opposite approach to this. And he says, look, actually this reveals something profound about the nature of color itself, right? Children actually reveal something about the world that what they do has philosophically uh, important consequences for us. And so he says that like children apprehend the world in a colorful way. They're, they don't just see color, their perception is colorful. It's full of color. And he actually points to how like uh, children, when they blush, right? Children blush, they literally become red. They literally like color takes over their body. Their body is infused with color. And so when children draw, when children draw outside of the lines, when they I mean, sorry, when they color outside of the lines, their color is fully expressive, expansive, it's unbound by objects. And this says something about the nature of color itself, which for Benjamin is um, color does not necessarily exist 
in bounded space and time. It is sort of unbound by objects. So if you think of a color field, it, it has no boundaries. It expands infinitely in all directions. It stretches on infinitely in all directions. So it's sort of outside of time. It's, it's, um, there's no earlier or later in a color field. Um, it, it, just, it just goes on and on. And um, uh, so this is why he says like the experience of pure color is sort of almost spiritual. It's, it's sort of like, this is why when, when you, people go to like the Rothko chapel, <laughs> you know, everybody's like the Rothko chapel, right? And it's like the spiritual experience looking at Rothko. Rothko had a very childlike understanding of color um, as a kind of infinite field, somehow unbound by space and time. And this is very different from the adult experience of color, which is that things are colorful, you know, objects have colors. Um, and so uh, colors are sort of bound, they're like, you know, either properties of the things or we sort of through our retina and through our, you know, through our, through our perception impose color on them. But anyways, they're bound to things, right? But children arts gives us access to this much more originary experience of color, pure color. And so I think Benjamin had great sensitivity towards childhood and a respect for um, the, the philosophical depth of, of, of um, child experience of the world. Thank you, Tyson. I, I appreciate that. It, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure to be able to have time to speak with you today to learn about your book and some of your forthcoming papers, as well as new projects and uh, uh, ideas that you've been working on. And as always, it's, it's a pleasure to be able to spend some time with you. So thank you very much. Yeah, likewise. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed this opportunity to talk about Benjamin in a in the context of really childhood education and I really hope that some of your listeners go out and explore his work more. Yeah great thank you Tyson. Um, next time on Child at Art we sit down with Dr. Laura Traffy Pratt's senior lecturer at Manchester Metropolitan University School of Childhood Youth and Education. Until then please visit our website uh, for additional updates and news at www.centerforthestudyofchildhoodart.com. Thank you.